Hello, everybody. Welcome to C-Suite Talks. We speak with industry leaders, introducing you to some of the most interesting people and businesses today. We are focused on women, money, and power, as well as diversity in all areas. Welcome to C-Suite Talks. I'm Diane Gubin, co-CEO of C-Suite. And I'm Beth Hilming, co-CEO of C-Suite. And today we're so blessed to have Channing Martin speaking with us today, the Senior VP, Chief Diversity and Social Impact Officer at IPG. Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, DEI, as we know, uh, she's a leader skilled in driving change, developing and executing innovative programs, um, providing thought leadership, building relationships across all levels of the organization, and engaging publicly with community partners and customers in order to grow and sustain inclusion and equitable workforce cultures. Welcome, Chaney, to C-Suite Talks. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here with you both and and everybody who's going to watch and listen later. Yeah, so uh, let me me start off. Before we get into all sorts of questions about you and your career and the work you're doing, tell us about what what is IPG? What does that stand for? What, What is What is it? Interpublic Group is a holding company of media, marketing, PR, advertising agencies globally around the world. We have over 55,000 employees across the globe, and we service the top brands and clients that you could imagine. Um, It's just an incredible organization of very talented, passionate, creative um, people. Um, So I really feel lucky and and blessed to, to, to work there. Fabulous. And for full disclaimer, IPG is a C-suite sponsor, so we're, we're very grateful. Thank you. So Channing, tell us a little bit, when I was reading your bio on LinkedIn, I saw two areas of your career and focus that were interesting to me. One was the founder of Empower Hour, and then the other was uh, the winner of the White House and U.S. Department of Labor Equal Pay App Challenge. So can you go into each of those a little bit to tell our audience what they're about? Because they were fabulous. Sure. Empower Hour is probably one of the programs I'm most proud of over the course of my career. I'm sure that you saw, Beth, that I started my career really in the federal government. Well, prior to that, I I would say kind of nonprofit, local government, but really in my formal capacity as a DEI practitioner in the federal space. And I thought that there was a gap in how we link kind of very compliance, uh, don't get fired nature of this work with real-time engagement, awareness building, um, and an opportunity to bring people together to really have a dialogue around what people are experiencing, in particular what they were afraid to talk about. And that's how Empower Hour was really birthed. I was given an hour a month with our all staff, and I needed to design a space where people felt safe, where they could opt in, um, and it could become really the coolest hour of your of your work day while also walking away from that engagement with um, new skills and competencies to drive diversity, equity, and inclusion. In the beginning, people didn't really know that's what was happening to them, but through these conversations, topics, um, the barriers and the walls started to break down and, and it grew and evolved into this program that then I've carried on to every organization I've been to since then. Oh, okay. That's fabulous. 
Did you implement it at IPG yet? Well, I've just gotten here. I haven't done it yet. I mean, what's what's pretty incredible is that, you know, many of our agencies, you know, we have incredibly talented DEI leaders who have launched and lead programs um, constantly across our landscape. So we are trying to determine what are going to be our flagship programs out of IPG and Power Hour may be one of them. Yeah, there you go. Terrific, terrific. And you're a, a White House winner and Department of Labor Equal Pay and App Challenge. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was great. I mean, my first love was really the economic empowerment of women and girls. And um, the White House partnered with the Department of Labor to um, ask folks to participate in helping to solve the gender pay gap crisis that we still face today. And so a small team of us out of Carnegie Mellon University got together to build a site where we leverage Bureau of Labor Statistics um, and we build an algorithm based on job codes, uh, gender data, right, population data on top of the Bureau of Labor Statistics around pay for those occupations so that when you landed on our site, you could put in any type of job that you were interested in and all of the data around that particular job will come up. So you would see what you should be getting paid according to the market, what the average men were being paid, average women were being paid. At that time, it was very binary in gender and in our study. Um, and it was great because we then supplied folks with negotiation skills and tools and tactics uh, to use the data to leverage higher pay. Um, and we were able to we won the challenge. I mean, it was really incredible to be recognized for that work. Is that website still up? It's still live. So in winning the challenge, we had to give over the rights to the Department of Labor, but we were excited about that. It's still up. I think I went on it the other day, actually, to see if anything had been done with it. And it looks like it did back when we built it. Um, but I think the Department of Labor was able to use the, the data and the concepts to build out other resources for people. Right. And I have a note that it's the, it's www.closethewagegap.com. That's it. Okay. Cool. Cool. Awesome. So you recently joined IPG five months ago. I did. How has the experience been so far? And why did you decide to join IPG and where did you come from? Well, it's it's been a roller coaster, as you could imagine. I mean, IPG is this incredibly large, complex organization and when you're sitting at the holding company level, you really have to figure out how to best service your employees, right? My job is to be an advisor, conduit, um, a support system for all of our incredible agencies within our network and our, and our global ecosystem. So I kicked off a listening tour when I first joined. That was the first thing I did. I'm still on this listening tour, um, traveling throughout the United States. And then in the end of January, I'll be kicking off my UK portion of the tour to get a better understanding of what people in the business are experiencing, how uh, we are defining workplace cultures, what have been some of the challenges, roadblocks, areas of opportunity, where have we been thriving? How is our work around equity and inclusion showing up in our work with our clients and brands um, to really learn from them, to people to tell me what they want and need from me and from the center at IPG. So it's been an incredible five months. It's, as you can imagine, sometimes an overwhelming amount of information um, and this excitement around a new leader that people still have and share. You kind of, you want to cherish that time right early on where people are excited about 
what's next and what's to come. Uh, because IPG has been a leader in this industry, in this space, having the first chief diversity officer at a holding company, transparency for people, analytics, and data being the first in that space, really being a trailblazer um, and how we have confronted some of the systemic challenges that exist. So there are big shoes to fill and to carry the torch uh, to the next level. Um, I really decided to join IPG because of what we do. I mean, we are in the business of being authentic storytellers. We use creativity to change human behavior. That's what we do for a living. That's our business. And the opportunity to think about the social impact that we can have locally, regionally, globally is extremely powerful. And to be able to do that with full support of our leadership, and in particular, our CEO, uh, Philippe Krakowski, it's just an incredible opportunity that I, I couldn't pass. Wow. So how did you get introduced to IPG um, and what made you, you know, transition at at a government into IPG like that to me is is a very significant move. Well, there were a couple moves in between there. I've been really intentional, right, about, you know, trying to experience this work in different industries. So after I was in the front, I thought I was going to be a U.S. ambassador when I grew up. That's what I wanted to be as a little girl. That's what I thought I was going to be. The first black woman ambassador for the U.S. was a member of my sorority, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. I just knew that's what I was going to do. And then I I worked in the State Department in our Anti-Human Trafficking Bureau, and it was an opportunity of a lifetime. But once I got experience overseas, I I realized that it wasn't for me, that I could make change in different ways. And so I shifted into finance and technology. And I thought that's where, you know, I was going to make a bigger, a bigger impact. And I'm so glad that I did because having the foundation and working in the in the federal space at the beginning taught me a lot and set me up for success in this, in this, um, I think in this space and this role, um, access to data and transparency is a given for the most part in the government there. We are required to share information with the public. The public is who we are responsible to and the federal government's the largest employer in the United States. So to lead DEI initiatives under the Obama administration's executive order was incredibly amazing opportunity to really learn how to build and design strategies to advance this work at the, at the forefront. So then going into tech and finance was a totally different space um, when you're accountable to other businesses, to entities, to, you know, revenue, to your margins, to your board. Um, and being in a public company, it was also a really incredible experience um, to be able to, um, you know, build strategies that impact so many people, your employees, but also through the products that you build and design especially thinking about accessibility or changing the way we um, build teams to, to build tools, that was incredibly rewarding. I think IPG really came to mind because my last organization, I was the head of ESG, and that was very new for me. And this world of ESG just, you know, it exploded and it opened the aperture for me to think about how I cre- could create change within the private sector. And I kind of, I fell in love with it. Now I don't lead ESG at, at IPG there. We have incredible talented people who do that. Um, and we have a chief sustainability officer who's fantastic, but to really focus on social impact in an industry 
that it really aligned so well to that mission. I mean, it was, it was just a no brainer for me. Fabulous. Wow. Well, you are definitely a change maker for sure. And, and so being, being in um, DE&I, what, what is the biggest myth that you're hearing out there? Cause you've, now you've done it on the, on so many levels. <sighs> the biggest myth. Um, I would say that, you know, there's often this myth that if you're passionate about this work, you can do it. That there's this kind of, oh, you're a really talented person of color. You're a really talented woman. Um, you should you should lead DEI. We, we see this all the time where people are being pulled from business entities into this role um, to elevate them, um, but then they're not being set up for success. I, I think that is one of the biggest myths that this you can just wake up and do this work overnight, that it doesn't take some specialized skill or training or experience. It requires a village, I think, chief diversity officers would say, to feel really supported based on the resources that are given to you, coaching, advisory, a team of other chief diversity officers who become your tribe. It is really hard to be dumped into this role because you're passionate and you believe in the work without that support system and structure. Um, I like numbers, but I don't think anyone's going to say to me anytime soon, you're really passionate about numbers. You should go become our CFO. That doesn't happen, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. And, 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 and so I, I think, um, uh, what, what is it within, within this that almost no one disagrees with you about? Because, to me, like there should be so much agreement about what you're doing, but I'm sure you're getting kickback and some of it's probably very passive aggressive. So I'm, I'm just wondering, um, you know, what is it that no one agrees with and how are you getting there? I was going to say, cause you know, everybody became, you know, like even with the Me Too movement, everybody was all into it da, 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 yeah. and then time has a way of eroding that enthusiasm yeah. and you've got to keep that focus. Right. Oh my gosh. It's so timely. I'm going to be talking tomorrow at the Think LA diversity summit um, about how, now what do we do with this kind of stagnation and this momentum following 2020, right? People had mm. such fire lit under them and a lot of what we've seen is very performative because the data isn't aligning with kind of the public statements and commitments, right? I think one thing that we haven't done well or gotten right, or we still need more time is to really figure out what are the appropriate metrics of success in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the acknowledgement that those may look different in different spaces, different industries, different companies, different business models, Um we are often using representation as the metric of success for DEI. And I think that's really misplaced. I don't know if people would agree or disagree with me on that one. Well, if that's displaced, then what would be the right one? Just, just curious to me, it would be pay equity, but. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think, I think there are many, I mean, pay equity is one of them, right. Across gender, but also race and ethnicity. Right. Um, I think there are global, this global conversation about data has exploded, but are we thinking about, you know, the, you know, hiring and retention of people with disabilities, right? 15% of the world population and people living with disabilities. So are we creating cultures that are disability friendly? I don't know. Is that a metric of success that you've seen in many DEI strategies? Like I, I haven't. No, I haven't seen that. No, especially hidden disabilities, right? Right. So, so maybe, yeah. maybe that is, I mean. Or this, you know, specifics around, you know, I'm all about being people being in positions of power and influence. We're often tracking C-suite numbers or the percentages of people 
you know, of color or women right at, at the board level, right? That, that rule of, of one, at least one woman or one person of color. Um, but are we thinking about people who, who run P&Ls or, or responsible for a certain book of business with a certain number of zeros? Like, who, who, where are those roles? How are we tracking that data, right? Everything's been an aggregate. So I just want us to be a little bit more intentional about what success in diversity, equity, and inclusion means. Like, how are we designing, you know, HR systems, equitable HR systems? What does that mean? Man, oh, these are great questions. <laughs> you, you, have, you have your work cut out for you here. I mean, what? It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of work. And, you know, I think the measure, the true health of an organization or the true um, impact of a leader is what the people who are following them are saying, right? And so we often, I think we're sometimes asking the wrong questions. Um, and so I think your organization, people will tell you the truth about their organization. And are you listening to them and changing it? Or are you just listening to them? Yeah, it's the change that's important because everybody gets empowered and impassioned, but you have to see the change or else they just write it off, right? Right. You're right. And now you've got that listening hat on. So exactly. <laughs> you need those big shoulders because I'm sure some of it you just yeah. have to go, oh my gosh, right? I think the health of an organization has to it has to be what people at the margins are experiencing and saying. So, you know, if the critical mass is it's great and 70% of the organization loves it and think it's thinks it's wonderful, but people with disabilities and people with accents and people of two or more races or people 60 and above are having a horrible experience. That's not why is that your metric of success? The 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 75% of people in the middle Oh my gosh. Let's talk about, yeah, go on, Beth. Let's talk about leadership. (laughs) So what are some of your favorite lessons in leadership? Because that is key to all this. I think being a leader is hard. It's hard work and, and, and it's different than being a manager. So I think that's the first thing is a leader isn't a manager. Um, and you can lead at any level. Um, and I, you know, I think one of my favorite leadership lessons is, and it's kind of this, we hear this phrase a lot, that people don't remember what you do. They remember how you make them feel. And that, I, I think, is so powerful. And it's so important to me, the ability to treat everyone as the most important person in the room. Anyone I encounter, no matter what, they're the most important person in the room. They bring value to either this discussion, the conversation, this decision, this thought process. That's incredibly important to me. Um I want to bring people along this journey and not just be a, a, you know, a dictator and tell people what to do, but they need to learn what to do for themselves. It's a question I get the most is like, what can I do? Tell me what I can do. I will tell you what you can do, but I'm also going to bring you along and teach you how to learn how to fish for yourself because it's not just up to me or the DNI leader. Everyone is responsible for a culture of belonging. Everyone should be responsible for a community and environment that centers equity. But you can't do that for yourself if if someone else is doing it for you. So teaching people how to fish, making sure people feel good and how they how they feel when you engage with them, and valuing inputs from people, um, no matter what level they are, are pretty are pretty important to me. IPG is so lucky to have you. <laughs> ah, thank you. 
So as we kind of like look to wrap up, you know, one of the questions we always get is kind of how do you balance your life and work? And how do you, because you're going to be traveling, you're going to the UK. I don't know if you have a family or not, but, you know, how do you kind of keep it all together? Yeah, you know, I started hearing that phrase around like work-life integration, and I really like that concept. I don't know that it's, I've ever had a true balance. I don't know what balance means. I just, I don't believe in like this balance. I also, people, you know, in dating, it's like, oh, we went like a 50-50 relationship. I don't think that actually exists. And so I'm not looking for a balance or a 50-50. I think what I'm looking for is you know, I really value living. I love experiences, learning new things, trying new things. And I need a job that allows me to live and that I love. My work, I, I've been very fortunate. That I've never worked in a job that for me is just a nine to five and to, to collect a check. It really aligns what I value and what I'm passionate about every day. Um, and that helps me keep the balance because I wake up every day and do what I believe in doing as a human you know, these are my value systems aligned with my job. Um, I don't always do it well. I can tell you that. That's true. I should get more sleep. I should eat better. And I probably should slow down sometimes. I think there's a club. Oh, man. I mean, definitely, <laughs> if I'm not in the club, I'm definitely like a part of the fan club of the, you know, not slowing down when I should at times. But I feel really lucky to work in an environment where people really care about people. I think sometimes you hear that people first. And what I've seen at IPG is that it's real. And I know I create that environment for the people that I work with. I don't ever say who work for me, but the people on my team that I work with, that I work for, um, I think they know that, you know, if their work-life integration is off and they aren't able to live life, we're going to change that. We'll course correct. I love it. I love it. Do you know what? I want to ask another question, Beth. Let's talk about the, the Institute for American Policing Reform. Yay, that's great. That is an organization that you're on the board of. And tell us a little bit about that and why it's important to you. So I just had the privilege of joining the board of the Institute of American Policing Reform. I'm really excited. I got back from Nashville last week for our board retreat, um, and I was introduced to this organization by um, a, one, of, one of my coaches, and I was really struck uh, by the monumental challenge that this group of really smart people are trying to solve. Um, and you know, we are really clear in that you know, police are essential, but so is reform. And we want to create that change in local police departments, local communities with everyday citizens joining together to figure out what that looks like and what that means. So that communities, people, um, law enforcement officers can really start to think about what does it mean to be a peacekeeper and how do we rethink about this this environment of policing to be positive for people, the experience with the police, the experience for police, and the experiences of people in communities. Um, Everyone deserves to be safe and to feel safe. And you should, the idea of policing should evoke a sense of safety, but for many of us, it does not. And so we're well aware of that challenge. And I'm excited to be on this this journey with them. It is a new space for me, but I I like putting myself in new environments. So that's that's it's it's wonderful. I'm really excited. Can you keep us informed as as how that progresses? That would be very interesting to learn. I definitely will. I yeah. will. We'll be live. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that would be that would be fantastic. Yeah. Well, and how we can support you. So before we say thank you, Channing, you know what? 
I see a, my crystal ball, a U.S. ambassadorship in your future. And pick a country that you love to visit. Careers are a long time and you set that intention. I would love that. Depending on the administration, maybe we could make that happen. <laughs> Someplace fun. Woohoo! So thank you, Channing Martin, who is the Chief Diversity and Social Impact Officer at IPG Interpublic Group. And thank you to our listeners. We appreciate you. Thank you to our sponsors, Google, the accounting firm of RSM, the law firm of Manette, hosting us this week, City National Bank, advertising media and PR companies of Interpublic Group, IPG, Channing's company, and uh, my firm, Amplified Professional Services, which is Executive Search and IT Consulting. Thank you for listening. Beth, do you want to wrap us up? Yeah, sure. So hit the subscribe button on Amplify, Spotify. We're live on YouTube. We're streaming now on LinkedIn. Come and enjoy. Leave us a review, positive, of course. Follow us on all the social media channels. Come to our events. Start swimming. Get active, involved. And you can find us at www.cswet.org. And thank you again, Channing, so much. And welcome to LA. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Beth and Diana. Thanks for Yay. having me. It was wonderful. <laughs>